Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview astronomer Luke Barnes. We don't have the last word on the laws of nature, but there's still good reasons to think that even when all the evidence is in, we're not just going to be left with, you know, oh, there's just, there's only one universe that's possible. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Luke Barnes is a postdoctoral researcher at ETH in Zurich, working on the link between Lyman alpha emission and the formation of cosmic structure, whatever that means. Luke, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Luke, you gave a lecture that is now on YouTube about the fine-tuning of the universe, how if the universe was set up just a bit differently, intelligent life could never exist. Could you give some examples of how the universe is fine-tuned? Right, well, there's a, there's a wide variety of examples. Uh, generally, we're talking about the initial conditions of the universe, the constants of nature, and the laws that govern the universe. So let's give a few examples. In terms of initial conditions, how, how much matter you put in the universe, in, in the early stages of the universe, turns out to need to be very fine-tuned. It, it turns out that if you put the wrong amount of matter in by one part in 10 to the 55, if you put in too much matter well, then gravity has too much of a hold on the universe and the whole thing will re-collapse within seconds, basically. If you don't put in enough matter, then the whole thing expands too fast, and in particular too fast for galaxies to form and stars to form and planets to form, uh, and so for intelligent life to form. So if you're ordering the universe, you need to specify 55 decimal places on that. So that's an example. Inflation has something to say about that. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that later. Another example is what's called the cosmological constant, which is a form of energy associated with the vacuum. Generally, that's how it's thought of. From particle physics, there's a natural range to the values that the cosmological constant could take. And if you then choose at random from that range, the probability that you get a life-permitting universe is somewhere between uh, one chance in 10 to the 53 or one chance in 10 to the 120. It's, it's somewhere in that range. Also, the clumpiness of the universe, if you make the universe too clumpy, then it won't make stars and planets and galaxies. It'll just make black holes. But if you don't make it clumpy enough, then it won't make anything. You'll just get a thin hydrogen soup. In terms of the constants of nature, we're, we're usually talking here about the forces of nature. There's there are four fundamental forces and you need to get them in the right balance to make the necessary conditions for life. You need to make stable nuclei. That's a tough one. If you make uh, the strong force, the strong nuclear force is what holds the, the middle of atoms. You've seen atoms where the electrons fly around the outside and then there's a nucleus in the middle. The strong force holds that together. So if, if you make that too weak, uh, for example, if you, if you make it 50% weaker than it is in our universe, all of the atoms used by life fall apart, which is bad. So you need the nucleus to be stable, you need atoms to be stable, that involves, you need the electrons to be stable, basically. That means you've, you've got to get your electromagnetic force just right. If it's too strong, then electrons can get either sucked into the nucleus or they have so much energy in their rotation that they're unstable to making electron-positron pairs and just annihilating themselves in a flash of photons. You need molecules to be not, not just stable but interesting. Uh, so you need chemistry to work in some sense. If you want to make interesting things, 
you know, look at your arm, that's just chemicals doing pretty extraordinary things. So you need chemistry to work. What that means is you're going to have to get the forces just right so that you don't just make boring lattices of atoms because that's just boring structure. I mean, think of DNA, you know, nice spirals. You can, you can, write, you can write information in DNA. It, it turns out for that you also need quantum mechanics to get that right. The reason for that is, this is an example of getting the laws right. If atoms obey the same laws that say the solar system obeys, so if you look at an atom with the electrons going around the outside, it looks a bit like the solar system with the planets going around. The difference is planets can orbit wherever they like. You can put them close in or far away. But in an atom, because of quantum mechanics, because that, that word quantum means there are definite specific states where, an at, where the electron can be, it, the chemistry of an atom is in where the electrons are, basically. For the chemistry of an atom, it means that, for, for example, for all oxygen atoms, because quantum mechanics says that the, the electrons must be in the same place, means that all oxygen atoms behave the same way as chemicals. So the example for that is if I breathe in a, a breath of, of oxygen and then another one, that second breath as the chemical properties are the same as the first one. So if that were different, if, if the second breath of oxygen was you know, useless or poisonous or acted as if it was you know, nitrogen or chlorine or you know, whatever, life couldn't exist in that universe because there'd be no regularities to how these chemicals behaved. What else? I mean, there's a long list here. Uh, early on in the universe, it's so hot that you're going to have some nuclear reactions and you've got to be careful not to overcook the universe. Uh, it's going to turn hydrogen into helium. But if you're too good at that, if you turn too much hydrogen into helium, then you've used up all the hydrogen that you're going to use to make long-lived stars. Now, you can make stars out of helium if you want to, but they burn out 30 times faster. So that's that's no good. The stars themselves, you want them to be long-lived. You want them to be stable. That criterion in particular has to walk a fine line. If stars are too small, they can be supported by what's called degeneracy pressure, which basically says matter doesn't like to be squished too hard. But if it's too big, then it's dominated by radiation pressure, just the light bouncing around. And those stars are unstable, they fragment. So there's a window of opportunity in the middle. Now, if you change the laws of nature, if you change the, the strength of the, the strong force and electromagnetism, you can close up that window. In particular, you need gravity to be extremely weak for that window to remain open. If it's not weak, it just closes up and you don't get nice, stable stars. You either get stars that are too big and just blow themselves, <laughs> blow themselves up or they're too small and they don't ignite nuclear reactions at all, and so they can't be energy sources. Stars also make all the interesting atoms that we're composed of. In particular, stars in our universe have the extraordinary ability to make both oxygen and carbon. The way that stars make things is you just literally smash small atoms together to make big ones, and if you do that at high enough temperatures, it works. It turns out if the strength of the nuclear strong force were different by one part in 250, I think, I should look that up, <laughs> then your universe would only create one at the expense of the other. For, you know, tune to take that fine strength of fine tuning dial and turn it just a slight bit one way, and you have a universe without oxygen, and a slight bit the other way, and you get a universe without carbon. Now, 
It doesn't make life impossible, but it does make life a lot more difficult. Also, the photons from stars are finely tuned to the energy it takes to power chemical reactions, which is quite a coincidence, actually. When you think of what's going on in a star, it's just a giant nuclear bomb held together by gravity. But the photons that come out are just right to power things like photosynthesis uh, in the leaves of plants. Well, let, me, let me just do a couple more. Once your star has made all your chemicals, you need to get those chemicals out of there because if the whole thing just collapses into a black hole, then all that good work was for nothing. So you need to blow your stars up in supernovae. That requires the very, there's various constraints on the forces of nature there, particularly the weak force. It's neutrinos, which are weak for, interact via the weak force that, that largely blow up stars. You're also going to need to put your stars in galaxies so that after you've blown them up, all the stuff that you want can collect back onto the galaxy. You need to get the number of dimensions of space right. Uh, it, space is three-dimensional. It turns out that's the only number of dimensions in which uh, atoms are stable and also in which planetary orbits are stable. For example, if the universe was four-dimensional, then a planet orbiting around a star, if it had a perfectly circular orbit, that would be stable. But the slightest deviation sends it spiralling into the star or hurtling out into empty space, which is no good for any life that's on that planet. So you need the universe to be three-dimensional. And finally, these sorts of considerations can give us an insight onto why the universe is so big. It is a stonkingly huge thing. If you made a model of the solar system out of a grain of sand, the size of the universe, the observable size of the universe, would be something like the distance from the Earth to the sun. So why is it so big? Well, it turns out it, because of gravity, the universe is unstable. So you can't have a universe of a fixed size. You can't order a universe of a certain size because gravity is going to try to make it collapse. So you've got to, if you want your universe to last for a while, it's got to expand. Now, if making stars and making chemicals and making life lasts, you know, it's going to take you a couple of billion years, then because of the expansion, the universe is going to be a couple of billion light years across. So any life out there in an expanding universe is going to see a really, really huge universe just because it takes that long for life to happen and the universe can't sit still. So that's a short introduction to just some of the ways that you can get a universe wrong, as it were, the, the things that you need to do to get the universe right for life. That's amazing. And as I understand it, there's not really so much disagreement about this fact that a lot of things had to be really finely tuned in order to produce life. More where the disagreement is, is how do we interpret this? What do we say about this? Is that correct? Yeah, there's still work to be done on these things. And on certain points, there's some refinement that needs to be done. For example, in the early universe, if you make the strong force too strong, then one proton can grab a hold of another proton and make helium. Now, that's a bad idea because we need those protons, which is just hydrogen, to make stars later. When this was first discussed, sort of, uh, the, the classic book here is Barrow and Tipler. They said it was about 9%, but uh, you do the calculations a bit more carefully, as, as someone did in the last few years, and because nuclear synthesis starts earlier, it's a bit weaker than that. It drops from 9% to something like 40 or 50%. But certainly, if there's so many cases of fine-tuning, it's unlikely that they're all going to go away. Right. So 
One of the things that we might say as an interpretation about this fine-tuning is, well, it's just a coincidence. What would you think of that interpretation? Well, if it turns out that that's true, then the universe is a lot more boring than we all hoped it was. The classic quote here is Miss Marple. Any coincidence, said Miss Marple to herself, is always worth noticing. You can throw it away later if it is only a coincidence. So, I mean, if we exhaust all our options and in the end we have no idea, then maybe we could think it's a coincidence. But at least let's go and explore some more options. Right. Well, let's do that. So a second response might be, well, look, we've only observed one universe and it's got life in it. So as far as we know, the probability that a universe would have life is one out of one. What, is, what are your thoughts on that interpretation? It's a misunderstanding of what we mean by probability. I mean, probabilities aren't really about what's actual. If you think of the standard high school definition of probability, you know, favorable over possible. Probabilities are about what is finding out what is likely or unlikely from amongst what is possible. And when you look at all the possibilities, there are just an extraordinary number of ways to get the universe wrong and a very few number of ways to get it right in, you know, in the sense of being life permitting. A good argument against this uh, sort of idea comes from John Leslie in his book Universes, which is just a fantastic book. And he points out that if that objection works for this universe, it works for any universe, no matter how you know incredible it is. For example, if Richard Dawkins goes home tonight and looks up at the stars tonight, and entirely due to natural forces, the stars above his house in perfect script writing have written, that's enough, Richard, yours truly, guess who? It would be ridiculous for him to then turn around and say, well, you know, there's only one universe, so the probability of that message appearing in the stars is one out of one. <laughs> the point Leslie is making is there must be, if that were true, if that objection worked, it would be logically impossible for an infinitely powerful creator to do anything at all to show us that he existed through the laws of nature, which just seems ridiculous. I mean... Take the Richard Dawkins example. You could just, any information he could dismiss in that way. The stars could write out a perfectly well-researched and philosophically, you know, perfect response to the God delusion. And he could still come home every night and go, well, you know, only one universe and sleep soundly in his bed. I think there's all these other possible universes. We shouldn't have to travel to other universes to reach the conclusion that, you know, that this is a significant fact about our universe, that it is fine-tuned for life. All right, so a third interpretation of fine-tuning might be something like, well, we've got life because of evolution, and evolution adapts to whatever environment you put it in. So however the universe, evolution would have eventually found a way to make life, right? What do you say to that? Yeah, I've heard this before. I had a, a good biologist friend in, in Cambridge, and uh, down at the pub we discussed this one quite a lot. We're not talking about what life can adapt to. That's not the issue here. The, the issue is what the universe needs to do before any form of life is even possible. So the idea that you could just present life with, say, a universe where all the matter has just collapsed into black holes and has been you know, crushed into oblivion, or where the only stable element is hydrogen, or, you know, that, uh, where the entire history of the universe is just a half-second fireball before re-collapse, that you could present life with that universe, take a microbe there and go, you know, go on, ad adapt, have fun. It's just, <laughs> I think it's kind of laughable. You just can't... Yet life on this planet, it, yes, it did adapt to its conditions on this planet, but the universe served it up on this planet. You know, it's got 
and it's the, the planet is nice and stable, there's plenty of water here, there's a nice stable star. That star is producing photons with just the right energy to power chemical reactions. The chemicals that are here have, you can put them together in, in fascinating ways. You know, the chem carbon can make DNA. Think about that. I mean, from the chemicals on this earth, you can make DNA, you can make all sorts of proteins, you can make Natalie Portman. It's just phenomenal. Life in this universe had it served up on a platter. So when we say life adapted to this universe, yes, it did, but that's because the conditions are so right. Change those conditions and life just isn't possible. Well, thank the stars for Natalie Portman. Yeah. So a fifth response might be that there could be other forms of life we aren't thinking of, like life based on silicon or something. What do you think of that possibility? One analogy for the fine-tuning, which, which might help later on, is suppose that there was a restaurant where the menu was just a huge blank sheet of paper. Uh, to order all, all of your food, you know, the starters, the drinks, the, all of that, you just took a pin and you put it somewhere on that piece of paper and that ordered everything. Now, suppose that someone came in who was very fussy, you know, and they might think, uh, I'll just colour in with a black marker all the dishes that I like and then we'll just choose out of those. Now if you had someone who was extremely fussy, when you stood back and look at this giant blank sheet of paper, you'd see just tiny specks all over the place. You know, a couple of tiny specks for this very fussy person. Now that is something like what the fine-tuning universe is like. We have all these possible universes and then we think about, alright, let's just colour in all the ones that could support life. And we end up with this you know, tiny speck somewhere that is us and then just dead universes all over the place. Now, if you say, ah, oh, there could be other forms of life, okay, but it's not enough to say, all right, there's the tiny speck that's our form of life. Oh, but you know, way off in the distance, there's another tiny speck. That, that's not enough. These other forms of life would have to start you know, colouring in large sections of the, the, the sheet of paper in order for it to be true that, you know, a universe chosen at random would probably contain life. And that's, that's the standard here. It's not enough that, you know, there's other forms of life. It, you've got to say that a universe chosen at random will probably have some form of life. Now, they, I've heard a lot of people talking about silicon-based life. And I think if, if we understand what's wrong with that idea, we'll understand what's wrong with most of these ideas. Silicon, in every way, compared to carbon, is worse at creating life. It, its long-chain molecules aren't as stable. Uh, it, you know, it, it, if you breathe in, we're carbon-based, you breathe in oxygen, the carbon and the oxygen combine to carbon dioxide, yeah, which is a gas. If you were silicon-based and you breathed in oxygen, you would get silicon dioxide, which is sand. Uh, so in every one of your cells in your body, instead of having a nice gas uh, which you could then breathe out, you'd be making sand, which would, <laughs> as anyone who's been to the beach knows, would, would be a you know, take up a task to get out of the body. Um, now that doesn't make life impossible. Don't don't misunderstand me. What it means is, if if the carbon-based life spec on the on the sort of the menu of possible universe is tiny then the silicon-based life spec is even smaller. Now, the second point is, any universe in which you can create carbon, you can also create 
silicon. You, I mean, we're just smashing atoms together. What's more, carbon is smaller than silicon, so you make carbon on the way to making silicon. What that means is if, if you've got a universe which is just right for silicon, it's probably just right for carbon-based life as well. So the silicon dot overlaps the carbon dot, right? So we have a huge number of possible universes. A tiny little, you know, carbon life can live here dot. And you said, oh, what about silicon-based life? Well, what you've done is you've put a tiny little pimple on the side of the tiny little carbon-based dot. <laughs> I think that shows what's wrong with this idea. If it were true that in any old universe you could make some form of intelligent life, then it would be overwhelmingly likely that we would be that form of life. If, you know, in half the menu over that side you could make, you know, Daleks. Oh, I'm showing my... <laughs> I've been in England for too long. That's a Doctor Who reference. If If you could make... Daleks in that half of the universe, then it'd be overwhelmingly more likely that we would be Daleks rather than the tiny minority of life over all these universes, which is carbon-based. So I think the problem with that objection is it's just false. It's just not true that you can make some form of life in any universe. You know, fine-tuning argument generally don't assume that life must be carbon-based. It doesn't assume anything like that. It's much more general. Than that, uh, it seems to be a very general conclusion that these other universes can't support life. Well, another interpretation of fine tuning might be, well, of course the universe is fine tuned for life; otherwise, we wouldn't be here pondering about all this. What are your thoughts on that? It's an objection that you can state very forcefully. Elliot Sober uh, has has done this. It's probably the best example of that. He's a philosopher. You know, you can say this very, you know, a square circle isn't possible, right? So what would we think about someone who walked around saying, you know, isn't that amazing? You just never see square circles anywhere. You know, that's that's incredible. Well, it's impossible to observe a square circle, you know? And then you know, you know, it's impossible for life to observe a universe which doesn't permit life. It's just not logically possible. So any life anywhere of any form must observe a universe that permits life. So how can you be surprised? So it's a very forceful objection. I think we can apply it that that sort of reasoning to uh, an analogy. Now, this this is another one from John Leslie. I'll I'll put it in another form because you know we're on the internet here. Suppose that you're sitting on the porch of your grandpa's home and he says, you know, Luke, I've got to tell you something. Uh, I'm Magneto. Uh, what what? You're one of the X Men? Yes, yes, Luke. I'm I'm one of the X Men. <laughs> But, you know, and he, he pulls a set of keys out of his pocket and makes them levitate a little bit. And yeah, it's a great grand magic trick there, Grandpa. That's, that's fantastic. And then on the hill above your house, a train derails and the carriages fall off and it's a cargo train. And for some reason, in, you know, in, what in hindsight is a pretty bad idea, they've packed these full of uh, TNT and the Ginsu knife. Uh, the carriages explode and 50,000 knives and enough shrapnel to make several rail carriages. It flies towards you and your grandpa. Oh boy. You, you duck and flinch and then two seconds later, you're alive and grandpa's alive and you turn around and, and you look at your house and there's 50,000 knives stuck into the front of your house except for two tiny little silhouettes where you are and where your grandpa is. And he looks at you and smiles and gives you a wink, and you say, 
Well, it's logically impossible for me to observe that I'm dead, so of course all the knives missed me. Well, I think I think something's gone wrong there. And if you're not convinced <laughs> that something's gone wrong there, it, may, it happens again. Another train derails, and then another one. And they're still packing these things full of TNT and the Ginsu knife. And then, you know, a plane crashes, a malfunctioning tank flies by, the... Uh, you know, the Society for Blind Snipers wanders past. The, you know, the, the house is gone. There's nothing left. All the material in the world has come past. The firing squad from the, the initial analogy takes another shot. An angry neighbour throws a frying pan. And all that's left is just you and your grandpa on a tiny little square of the porch. And after all that, you have to say, well, you know, I just can't reach any conclusions here, grandpa. Something's gone wrong here. And I think as an astronomer, we deal with these things all the time. It, it, the anthropic principle, as this thing is called, the idea that life must observe that it's in a life-permitting universe, it's best understood as a selection effect. Now, astronomers are very familiar with these. For example, if you look way out in the universe, you're not, getting a, you're not seeing a random collection of objects. You're seeing the brightest objects. Mm-hmm. Because for, to see something out there, it's got to be bright enough for you to see it. And so we have to be very careful as astronomers because we're not getting a random sample of the universe. We're just seeing the bright. It'd be like going into a mall and trying to get a random, doing a random survey and just surveying all the loudest people. That's not a random sample. So now think about the discovery of, of what are called quasars. They thought these things were stars. And then someone discovered, oh, no, actually, they're, they're not in our galaxy. They're way, way out in space, hundreds of thousands of times further away. So that they must be extremely bright, right? If we can see them that far away, they must be incredibly bright. So now you ask the question, why are quasars so bright? And suppose someone answered, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to see them. Well, that's true, but it's not the sort of explanation we're after. The, the sort of explanation we're after is, is that that uh, uh, Donald Lyndon Bell gave in 1969, where he, he proposed a model where quasars, there's a supermassive black hole, and as as the matter is falling towards the black hole, it gets really fast and compressed, and all the energy is released, and that's why they're so bright. So if you think about those two explanations, both of them could be true, but only one of them is the sort of explanation we're after. So you can explain it like this. The selection effect in astronomy it does explain why we don't see faint objects, but it doesn't explain why we do see bright ones. Mm. Yeah? So I think the anthropic principle is like that. It, it does explain why we don't observe a life-prohibiting universe, but it doesn't explain why we do observe a life-permitting one. Right. Because it's not a causal explanation. The anthropic principle on its own doesn't explain the fine-tuning of the universe. All right, well... A sixth response is that maybe there are deeper laws that force the laws that we know about to be what they are, and maybe the universe has to be this way, and we just it just looks like it could be other ways. Yeah, uh, it's it's a common response when you're faced with something very that seems very unlikely to say you know, maybe there's an underlying necessity to it. Let's take an example just to clarify our thinking. It would seem to be just an extraordinary sporting achievement that uh, in every single year since 1903, a team from the United States of America has won the World Series of Baseball, right? 
that would seem to be just an astonishingly unlikely occurrence. And you can work out how unlikely it is. You know, there's about 100 countries out there. It's been going for more than 100 years. The, the probability of that is less than one part in 10 to the power of 200. This is an amazing achievement, isn't it? <laughs> Until you find out that, for some reason, the World Series doesn't involve the rest of the world. It's just a competition between American teams. <laughs> right. Which is kind of baffling to a foreigner like myself. So note what happened in that example. What we thought was an extremely unlikely contingent fact, when we really understood it, turned out to be just you know, almost a necessary fact. An excellent example of this is inflation. In the very early universe, it's postulated that there was a, a field, a form of energy that made the universe for a, a tiny fraction of a second expand exponentially so that the expansion accelerates and that, so in, in a sense, blows the universe up. This is called inflation. What that does for you is it sorts out the, the very first fine-tuning that I talked about, the, the, the matter needing to be, the density of matter needing to be very close to uh, critical. You know, it, it's, got a, it's got a target it's got to aim for. Inflation will take you towards that target, whereas the ordinary expansion of the universe would, would take you away from it. Now... That's an excellent example of how a, a deeper understanding makes some of the fine tuning go away. And certainly we haven't, you know, no physicist think we, thinks we've heard the last word on the laws of nature. But let, let me raise five, you know, five or six problems with any sort of solution like this. It might just move the fine tuning back a level. For example, you can get inflation wrong. There, there were all sorts of problems early on in the history of inflation uh, where I discovered a lot of the ideas for how inflation could work uh, didn't, didn't work. You didn't exit inflation. It's called the graceful exit problem. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't create a life-permitting universe. So it could be the case that all you're doing is instead of having a fine-tuned matter density, you just have a fine-tuned process of inflation. That's always a worry. The second worry is it relies on other coincidences. Inflation will drive you towards the critical density, and then it's just a coincidence that life requires a universe which is near the critical density. Um, if it was the case that life required a universe which was, say, 10 times less than the critical density, then inflation would actually drive us away from the life-permitting range, and so inflation would ruin every universe. Instead of making it right, it would just make them all wrong. Um, so there's still coincidences there that, that you should worry about. If you look at it, uh, thirdly, if you look at a very strong form of this argument, maybe there's only one logically possible universe, that, it, to a theoretician especially, just seems obviously wrong. I've got a quote here from Paul Davies. I think the idea that there's only one universe is demonstrably wrong. You know, as a theoretical physicist, I find it rather easy to imagine alternative universes that are logically consistent and therefore equal contenders for reality. Now, it, it's just very, you know, the idea that there's only one logically possible universe, I think, is, is just obviously false. We can think of plenty of other logically consistent possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is a problem. Um, one of the great hopes for, you know, point four, one of the great hopes for, uh, in this area, string theory. Maybe string theory is going to deal with all the constants uh, in a self-consistent way. String theory, the, the hope is that you'll have string theory, it, it'll be the ultimate law of nature, 
And then from that, we'll be able to predict what, you say, the, the mass of the proton is and what the strength of the strong force is, so that we think we can change these things, but we actually can't. Now, even if there are no other possibilities within string theory, there are certainly other possibilities to string theory, if that makes a sense. You know, given that string theory, maybe there's only one set of laws of nature, but there are certainly alternatives to string theory. Mm -hmm. Another point, about, especially about string theory, is even if the laws of nature have no free constants in them, it could still be the case that the solutions to those laws do. This is especially true of string theory. Even if there are no free parameters in the laws themselves, it's still the case that there are plenty of parameters in the solution. So instead of explaining the fine-tuning, all you've done is you've turned the fine-tuning of a parameter of the law into a fine-tuning of the parameter of the, in the solution, which it is just shifting the, the, the problem around. It's not solving it. And finally, it would just be the mother of all coincidences. If the only universe permitted by the laws of nature would also happen to permit intelligent life. There's a, a classic paper in 1979 by Bernard Carr and, and Martin Rees. Uh, Martin Rees is a name to, to keep in mind. He's written some good books on this. But they finish with this statement. Even, even if all the apparent uh, anthropic coincidences could be explained by a deeper physical law, it would still be remarkable that, though, that the relationships dictated by physical theory happened also to be those propitious for life. Um, so, yeah, we haven't, we haven't, you know, to sum up, we haven't got that, we, we don't have the last word on the laws of nature, but there's still good reasons to think that even when all the evidence is in, we're not just going to be left with, you know, oh, there's just, there's only one universe that's possible. Now, all these other possibilities still seem to be likely, but, you know, if we're trying to look in our crystal ball and work out what, what physics is going to do in, the next thousand years and it's not easy so it's certainly a live option and then how about maybe the most popular response that there may be an infinite number of universes and so we just happen to be in one of the few that can support intelligent life you know somebody's got to win the lottery whether or not it, you can pick out the particular person that won the lottery. Uh, I hear this a lot. Um, and the first thing I always think is that it's not true that someone's got to win the lottery. <laughs> it's just more likely. But th that point aside, also another minor thing, you don't need an infinite number of universes. You just need enough that it's likely that one of them somewhere is going to support life. Sure, trillions and trillions, I suppose. Yeah, the multiverse is what this is called. There are a couple of ways that we could characterize a multiverse. There's the unrestricted multiverse, which is sort of an idea that a philosopher called David Lewis put forward. Maybe maybe all possible realities are real in some sense. How philosophers come to believe these things, I'm never quite sure. Or you could have a restricted multiverse where not everything that's possible is real. And then you've got to ask the question, well, why are some, some universes actualized and some not? A good example of a physical multiverse is eternal inflation. The idea here is you start off with just one region of, region of space-time and then this process of inflation, rather than making the whole universe expand, makes sort of little bubbles ex expand off the side. So think of sort of a foam of bubbles and then individual bubbles get blown up to be big universes. We, we've got to ask a few questions here. Is, is this science? Is it scientifically testable in some way? I think it is that you can argue against it on the grounds of typicality, you know, if 
if there are all these other universes out there, we should at least be typical of life in this universe. Now, that creates a problem for what, what, what might be called the first ever multiverse explanation, which was by uh, Boltzmann in the, in the 1800s. He was trying to work out, you know, how... The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy always increases. So the universe gets more and more disordered, and it, it's tending towards thermodynamic equilibrium where nothing ever changes. It just... And so he thought, you know, what if there's this massively huge universe and in some reasons just by chance it formed itself into, you know, uh, the universe as we see, you know, just, just a fluke. But elsewhere in the universe it's still just in thermal equilibrium and, and boring. The, the problem with this idea is that the universe is too big. Life doesn't need a universe which is this big. So it's more likely you, you look at what is the probability of forming... Uh, by just by chance, by a fluctuation, a universe which is this big, and you find that it's more likely that the universe is actually just incredibly small, but that we're wrong about the size of the universe. In particular, it's more likely that instead of us being what we think we are, which is you know life embodied on a planet around a star and we can see galaxies, it's more likely that we are just a chance statistical you know, just a single brain that fluctuated out of the mess with all those memories in it and that all of reality is just a, a farce. You know, it's just, it's just false memories implanted in this brain. So that was a problem for Boltzmann's answer. And I think Roger Penrose has argued that you get the same problem for eternal inflation. In fact, for a lot of universes. If you take this approach, it becomes more likely that we're just a brain who thinks that we're human beings on a planet around the sun than that reality is actually as it is. Now, if the multiverse has those, has generically has those sorts of uh, predictions, those sorts of consequences, uh, it would almost lead you to say, all right, you know, even if that were true, there's no way that we could affirm that it's true. So it's not rational to believe that. There are some ways that you can scientifically test this idea uh, furthermore, again, you come back to the problem of are we just shifting around the problem? The multiverse itself could need to be fine-tuned. If you have a malfunctioning bread maker, it's going to make you know, lots and lots of bad loaves of bread. If, if we have a, a multiverse generator, it's perfectly possible, like in the inflation example before, that it will just churn out you know, oodles and oodles of dead universes. So... There are still some issues with the multiverse. I think it's one of the best options, but it's it's certainly not unproblematic. Mm. I wonder if you could comment on how other theories of multiverses, like by Smolin or Everett or Wheeler, might come into this discussion of fine-tuning. Uh, okay, let's go through these. Everett, this is the idea that in quantum mechanics, whenever the universe has to make a quantum mechanical decision, Usually we'd say it, it does it at random and then the, the universe just goes on. But Everett had this idea that maybe reality itself sort of divides in two and you have two parallel universes, if you want to call it that, or you know, actually perpendicular is probably a better description. It goes a different way in, in both of those. So that's, that's the Everett multiverse. It's an interpretation of quantum mechanics and it's not the only interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, I don't know how popular it is, but certainly... You're still gonna. I don't think it's going to answer all the problems because you've still got the laws of quantum mechanics, right? You know, even if the universe is splitting off, it at best it might deal with you know some of the 
more environmental issues like the initial conditions of the universe. But you're, you're going to need to incorporate in these quantum decisions all of the laws of nature if you want to make this work. And that's a bit... Yeah, I don't know if anyone's done that or, or even thinks they know how to do that. Uh, Wheeler, I've just read his book uh, At Home in the Universe, which is just fantastic. I, I'm a big fan of John Wheeler's work. His idea is that we have sort of a self-participation universe where in this universe the anthropic principle actually does work for us. You know, you might, you might call it the strong anthropic principle where it, it is literally our existence which sort of reaches back in time and pulls the universe into existence. There's this idea that it's observation which makes the world real, which is a, a quantum, in quantum mechanics, the idea is that you have the, the wave function which expresses all the possibilities of where a particular atom is or what state it's in and all that. But when you make an observation, the wave function snaps to a particular point. So, you know, the atom is here and it's not over here and it's, it's in this state, it's going this fast, definite. So his idea is that maybe observation, it not only tells the universe where it is, but, you know, just makes the, tells the universe, you know, what to be. It's a fascinating idea, but it's one of those, it's one of those ideas where you're, it, it's on the fine line between is this brilliant or is this completely bonkers? And I'm, I'm honestly not sure what side of the line it's on. Certainly he hasn't, there's not really a model there. He's, he's just thinking, he's just, you know, letting his brain run free. There's not really a model there. So it's hard to evaluate that one. Paul Davies has some similar ideas, and again, it's hard to know whether he's glimpsed something deep or whether he's slowly going crazy. Uh, <laughs> you, you just anyway. Uh, Smolin's idea is much more worked out. Uh, his idea is maybe in the middle of black holes, when we think things are being crushed to oblivion, actually we're making a new universe in there, and then you get you know maybe this universe will have different properties, and so you start to get a, a sort of a Darwinian idea if that new universe itself is set up so it makes black holes, then it will make more baby universes. And so you get, it's not quite biological evolution because there's no natural selection, but at least a given observer is likely to find themselves in a universe which is geared towards the production of black holes. Now there's a few things to say about this. It's a fascinating idea, a really great original thinking. It's very speculative. The idea that inside a black hole you make a new universe is really, I mean, just right on the edges of what we think might the universe might be like. In particular, when information goes into a black hole, is it gone forever or is it still there in some form? There was a famous bet between Stephen Hawking and someone else. Hawking bet that the information is gone if the information is no longer there, then you, you're free to create a new universe inside because you can never find out. But if the universe is still there at some point, then it could come back out of the black hole, in which case, you know, the, the universe would be sort of uncovered for what it is, which would create problem. That's all very confusing. If you're confused, so am I. The moral of the story is it's extremely speculative. Worse than that, it, it seems to be replacing... It doesn't explain all the fine-tuning. It, it takes a fair stab at a lot of them. But it seems to replace some of the fine tunings with just the mother of them all, which would be the coincidence that a universe which is doing its darndest, doing the very best it can to make black holes, purely by chance, will also make intelligent life. That I find to be just astonishing, if that's true. That would just be the greatest coincidence of them all. That would be just fine tuning par excellence. You know, 
it, suppose you were trying to make a universe and you think, you know, what I want is just black holes. I just want to take all the matter in the universe and just crush it into oblivion. I'll make huge black holes everywhere. Right, let's set this universe off. Oh, look, I've made human beings. What, what are the chances of that? That's just, that, that seems to me just to be incredible. <laughs> so it's a very good idea from Smolin, but even if it's true, it's not a complete explanation. You're still going to have some fine-tuning. Well, let's think about one of my favorite potential interpretations, and that is the idea of some kind of math student in another universe or a higher dimension who is creating our universe as a kind of experiment to see if he can figure out how to make a universe that creates life. Yeah, uh, I find this idea very implausible just because, you know, I don't think math students are that clever. I just like the idea that <laughs> we're in a simulation. Yeah, I think it'd be more plausible if you said, you know, physics students. But anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Edward Harrison had an idea along these lines that, you know, maybe off into the future, even human beings, even us, we, we could make new universes. You know, suppose that, you know, we could do this, you and I, and we had a competition to see who could make the most intelligent, you know, universe. And, and the, the rules of the competition could be this. The winning universe is one in which it, it first evolves life, which is intelligent enough to speculate that this universe was created as the result of a competition between two scientists in the next universe up, who were both <laughs> called Luke. <laughs> we can imagine that sort of thing thing happening. In fact, uh, Edward Harrison took it one step further. He said, you know, if, if that happens, we'd want to create universes which were interesting, which which had forms of life. Uh, in you know forms of life intelligent enough that they would then create their own universes, and so our universe starts having uh, children and and grandchildren, and so it, however the first universe started, universes after that would it, most of the universes in the universe would would be there from some sort of intentional selection from the next universe up. It's a fascinating idea. The obvious problem is. How did the first universe start? Obviously, because you need something that is fine-tuned to get to to kick things off with. But I think that sort of thought experiment does clarify some of the issues here. It certainly is a scenario that makes sense, even if it doesn't answer all your questions. Hmm. Well, another interpretation would be something like, "Well, hey, this universe." that supports intelligent life is just as unlikely as any other kind of universe. So what's all the hubbub about this universe? Let's apply that type of thinking to another scenario and see what goes wrong. Suppose that we're playing poker, you and I, and whenever I deal, I get a royal flush and win. Now, this happens 10 times in a row. And then you say, you know, come on, you're cheating. And I say, oh, I'm not cheating. You say, come on, the chances against that are... I think I worked this out. It's like one in ten to the forty-seven or something. You know that's ridiculous. And suppose I say ten royal flushes is very unlikely, but any set of ten poker hands is very unlikely. So you can't reach any conclusions about when I'm whether I'm cheating or not. Common sense says something's gone wrong there. And we might struggle to put our finger on it until you start thinking about well, when I say that ten royal flushes is just as unlikely as any other set of poker hands, I've actually made an assumption there. The assumption is that I'm dealing fairly. That statement is only true if I'm dealing fairly, but that's precisely what we want to know. So 
we've asked the wrong question. So much of probability is about asking the right question. If you ask the question, given that I am dealing fairly, what is the probability of me getting 10 royal flushes in a row? You get the answer, well, it's the same as for any other set of 10 poker hands. But that's not the question we want to ask. The question we want to ask is, suppose that I just dealt myself 10 royal flushes in a row, what's the probability that I'm dealing fairly? The second question takes into account the hypothesis that I'm cheating. And I think it's pretty obvious that that hypothesis is true in this, in this scenario. Let's go back to the, to the subjection for the universe. We said this universe is just as unlikely as any other. That's only true if the universe's properties have been chosen at random. But that's precisely what we want to know. We don't want to know, we don't want to go, you know, suppose it's been chosen at random. What's the probability of this universe supporting life? We've, we, we want to turn that around. This universe supports life. What's the probability that it was chosen at random? Now, when you put it like that, you, it's up against all the other alternative hypotheses and the fact that it has the same probability as any other universe if you choose at random just isn't relevant. So I, I think that objection fails. Well, we're up to interpretation number 10 of fine-tuning. Another one would be just to say that, well, the universe doesn't look like it was designed for life at all. It looks like it was designed for empty space or vacuum fluctuations or black holes or something. We, you know, saying that this universe was designed for life is like finding a single grasshopper on Antarctica and say that, saying that Antarctica was designed for grasshoppers. <laughs> oh, well, well put. This objection kind of misses the point. The, the claim is not that this universe contains the most amount of life that you could possibly pack into this amount of space. Let's give an example. Suppose I, we thought about all the possible ways that you could arrange two tons of metal and plastic. All right, so metal and plastic, all the possible ways you could arrange them. Now, suppose I claimed amongst all those possibilities, the set of functioning motor cars, the functioning cars is very, very small. So that if you just threw all this plastic together, all this plastic and metal together at random, you're very unlikely to make a working car. Now, let's think about that claim. Can that claim be refuted by saying, ah, yes, but your car doesn't go very fast? Well, no, that's not the claim. I'm not claiming that this is the best of all possible cars. I'm just saying, if this car wasn't made, it wasn't chosen at random. You can't say, it's thinking that you could make a better car doesn't refute that claim. Thinking that, you know, even if you noted that 99% of all the cars that have ever been made don't work anymore, that wouldn't refute the claim. The possibility that, oh, you've, you've forgotten about motorbikes, that wouldn't refute the claim either. That's just another tiny little possibility amongst all these just useless piles of junk. Actually, when you think about it, the observation that so much of the universe doesn't support life actually supports the claim that life needs to be fine-tuned. I mean, think about it. If you can understand why life cannot exist out in interstellar space where there's just no matter and, you know, it's just a, it basically a vacuum, then you can understand why life can't exist in a universe in which, you know, the lumpiness parameter is, is slightly less because then the whole universe is like that. Or if you make the lumpiness parameter slightly more, then all of the universe is like that except for the stuff that's being crushed into black holes. 
or if you don't get the density right, or if the cosmological constant is too much, or if gravity is too weak to form things into stars so that you just have a, the whole universe is just empty space like that, or if you don't, when you're done with your stars, you don't blow them up in supernovae because then you've just got empty space and then black holes where the, your stars were. So if you can understand why life can't exist out in all the dead spots in our universe, then you can understand why our universe needs to be fine-tuned because if the properties weren't right, the whole universe would be like that. You need to fine-tune it in order to get, you know, this nice little spot down here on the planet. Um, furthermore, when people look out into the universe, they see all this empty space and all this, all these places where life can't live and it's so inhospitable. What do you want to do about it? If you go and fill in those holes, let, let's just, you know, make a few nicer areas for life. If you make the universe more dense, but then gravity takes a hold and makes the whole thing collapse. On my blog, I, I respond to, um, PZ Myers on this. He says, you know, why isn't the universe just, you know, trillions of miles of just lakefront property with excellent fishing? Well, <laughs> if, if you make a universe which has the density, that, that sort of density, the density of basically of water, it collapses, and it collapses in on a time scale independent of its size in about a day. So you're stuck either way. You, you can't fill the universe with life. You'll make it too dense, and then it'll collapse and ruin it for everybody. Like I was saying before, you can't make a universe of a certain size because gravity will make it collapse. So you've got to make it expand, so it's going to be big. You've got to make it dilute, so it's going to last. And so it, it just follows from the laws of nature. You, you're going to end up with a universe which is mostly empty space, but which, if you get your gravity right and your supernova right and your stars right, you're going to make those little nice areas for life if you fine-tune things right. So I, I, I think that objection fails as well. Well, what about an 11th response, which might be the most popular response of all, is that this shows that there has to be some kind of intelligent designer outside of any kind of physical reality that tuned these values to what they need to be so that there would be intelligent life in the universe. Yeah, I had a feeling we were going to get onto that one. Let's ask the question in this way. You know, can we make this into an argument for the existence of God? Let's try and make the best case we can and then we'll think about whether it actually works. So I, I think there's two methods for this. The first one would be just a straightforward deductive case. I think the best example of this is William A. Craig in an article that he wrote for a book called God and Design, The Teleological Argument of Modern Science by Neil Manson. I'm sure we can, we can link to that, where he sets it out very carefully. In his debates, he's only got a few minutes, so he has to condense things. But in that article, he goes nice and slowly. So the, the basic form of the argument is, you know, the universe is fine-tuned. It's either chance, necessity, or design. It's not chance or necessity, so it's design. That's one way that you could do it. The other way to put the argument is the way that Robin Collins did it in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, which is not trying to end up with the conclusion, therefore God exists, but the much weaker conclusion, but still very interesting conclusion, that fine-tuning the universe confirms theism over and above the atheistic, naturalistic universe. Right. Let's try and set that one out clearly, and then we can think about how we want to evaluate that. Let's do it sort of as a hypothetical, and you know, this is the way that scientists often do things. You, you have a model, you think about the model, what would this model predict, and then you go and look and see if it's, it's true. So let's, let's do that sort of thing. Suppose that there is a God, and you know, roughly Judeo-Christian, that's that sort of God. 
Suppose that he is a being who can exist without the universe, uh, that he is powerful enough for our purposes. You know, we don't have to assume omnipotence. Suppose that this being is free and that he freely decides to create a world. Suppose that he decides that uh, the ordinary course of nature in the whole of creation will have certain natural laws uh, determining for each thing what it can or cannot do. Suppose that this being, because it is a thinking agent, might want plausibly to create you know, other thinking agents. That's not completely unlikely. So he looks at the possible universes and picks out one that will allow for the production of life and then sets the universe off with those conditions. Life, in turn, develops in such a universe. It's intelligent. It starts studying the natural universe that it's been put in. It, through empirical evidence, mathematical reasoning, and all that sort of things, it discovers the laws of nature, discovers that the universe is fine-tuned. In discovering the laws of nature, they call this idea science. Now, in that sort of universe, there wouldn't be any necessary conflict between science and at least some sort of religion. If that was true and you believed it to be true, then, you know, that sort of religion would be all right, I suppose. You Certainly, you could make up religions that were complete bollocks, but, you know, that, that's true in any universe. It would be true that science had a complete authority over natural processes and the way the universe worked and would have completely unchallenged authority in the realm of investigating the physical world. But there would still be these niggling questions that science couldn't answer, and yet which we all thought were reasonable questions. Questions like, why does science work? Why is this whole thing working? I think every physicist has had that thought from, from time to time. You know, How is it that we can take a sheet of paper and write down squiggles and predict how the universe works with incredible accuracy? I mean, the, the, something called the gyromagnetic uh, ratio of the electron. You go and you do your quantum field theory and you predict that number and we get it right to 10 decimal places or something. It's, that's phenomenal. That's like someone takes a piece of paper and says, look, check this out. I'll predict your phone number and just gets it. They're all 10 places of your phone number. So why can we do that? Why is mathematics so good in describing our physical world? And you know, beyond that, why is, what is it that you know, Stephen Hawking said this? What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Why are the scientific laws the same today as they were yesterday? Why are there scientific laws at all? Why is there a universe at all? What are mathematical truths? Ma you know, mathematical truths, Pythagoras' theorem, seem to be you know, invariant and you know, they're always true. They're necessarily true. They're not just true in this universe, but in any possible universe. What, what the heck are they? Why do they preside over all possible universes? Why do logical principles preside over all you know, possible truths? You know, these aren't scientific questions. You can't go out and make an observation and do an experiment. But if that sort of universe is the way it really is, then the right answer to those questions would involve God, even if that was a slightly mysterious answer. In science, in that sort of universe, C.S. Lewis said it, it would explain everything except what we call everything. The only thing it doesn't explain is the universe itself. Now, this sort of idea, it's not an ad hoc idea. Uh, the quote I gave earlier, that I, I didn't actually say it was a quote, the, in the ordinary course of nature in the whole of creation we'll have certain natural laws determining for each thing what it can and cannot do. That's actually a quote from St. Augustine in the 5th century AD. So this is not an ad hoc idea that we came up with when we were faced with science, that believers came up with. 
Now take that idea, that, like, that's our hypothesis, and now confront that idea with the fine-tuning of the universe. Well, it's not so bad, really. I mean, it, it fits in quite nicely. It makes sense that even if all these other universes were possible, that an intelligent being would know what would happen and would be able to choose what sort of universe he wanted. And this is certainly a very interesting universe, so it's not completely unlikely that he'd prefer this universe over, say, one that lasted half a second and only contained hydrogen. That's not completely out of the question. Certainly, if you then take the fine-tuning and you present it to the naturalistic hypothesis, which is that the properties of the universe were set either just completely by chance or certainly by processes which didn't have life in mind, so to speak, then confront this with the data that the universe needs to be fine-tuned for life, and gosh, that's a bit awkward, isn't it? You know, if I was thinking about this yesterday, and by chance the, the Batman movie from 1966 was on the TV, and at just the right moment, Batman said... Yes, Robin. I'd say the odds against it would make even the most reckless gambler cringe. <laughs> Which I thought was fantastic. But certainly, if you think the universe is like that, you've got a lot of explaining to do. So, you know, those sorts of ideas, you've still got to face things like the problem of evil and there's, you know, the hiddenness of God and there's a lot more to be done. But just focusing on these two alternatives, you know, you present them with the fine tuning. It doesn't create a problem for theism, and certainly it should make your average atheist a bit uncomfortable. He's certainly got some explaining to do. So it's that sort of argument that I think is the most persuasive. Now, how persuasive it is, well, your listeners can make up their own mind. <laughs> now, what about the atheist who says, well, this is just another gap in our knowledge that we're choosing to fill with, you know, poof, God did it. It's often said that this is just another God of the Gaps idea. I don't think that's right. The God of the Gaps was, you know, what's lightning? We don't know. Uh, God did it. That's something in the universe. This is about the laws. You, know, you have to realize that if naturalism is right, if all that exists is natural, if the physical world is all that exists, then at some point you reach the laws of nature as they really are and stop. So we have what we think of the laws of nature, maybe we have a deeper understanding, but at some point, you know, assuming that an infinite regress of laws is not possible, and I'm, I'm of that, I think that's right, at bottom you just have to say these are the laws of nature, stop asking questions. You know, at, at, at the bottom the universe turns out to be a bag of shush. So we're not talking about just some phenomenon in the universe that we can keep studying. In, in the end, we're you have to come to grips with the fact we're going to be left with this is the law of nature, don't ask any more questions. And the, the, the problem that the fine-tuning of the universe raises is that if it's so unlikely that that law of nature would support life, then it seems like we have a whole host of questions left over. And if those questions are even meaningful, then the naturalism hypothesis that this is ultimate reality would seem to be falsified. And what about the atheist who says, well, pushing it back to God doesn't really help because then we would just have to explain, well, why is God that way rather than some other way? Why is God fine-tuned to prefer a kind, this kind of universe rather than some other kind of universe? I mean, how does God help us answer this question? It just seems like it pushes the question one more step back and then adds in all these 
very mysterious things about non-physical beings who think outside of time and have knowledge outside of space and all that. That's a really good point. One of the problems with just doing the teleological argument, the argument from design as just a straight deduction is that you, you start having to think about things like what is the probability that God would want to make this sort of, you know, a, a life-permitting universe? And that's a really, really, how, how could you even answer that question? <laughs> I think in the end, I, I don't think that's a huge problem just for the reason, you know, suppose that, now think about our analogy before about the poker game where I've just dealt 10 perfect poker hands in a row. Now, if you want to say it is more likely than not that I am cheating, you have to have some idea about what the prior probability is that I would cheat. If I then said, you know, you can't reliably estimate the prior probability that I would cheat, you don't even know me. And even if you do know me, you know, how, how, how would you even guess that thing? I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I like. How, how would you even guess that? It seems like, you know, that, that might be a problem, but we'd still want to conclude that I'm cheating if I've done 10 royal flushes in a row. And I think the reason for that is, however un unknowable that probability is, the probability that I'm cheating, it's up against the probability of 10 royal flushes in a row by chance, which is one part in 10 to the 47. So for that probability to be relevant to the issue at hand, the probability that I'm cheating must be of that order, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. for, for those things to sort of balance out, you must produce some sort of, have some reason for arguing that the probability that I'm cheating is less than one part in 10 to the 47, which I don't think you'd trust me that much, to be honest. So, yeah, there, there's an issue there that you start having to think about, you know, putting probabilities on God and what are the chances of that? And it, the whole thing just seems to be completely lost. But... That, that seems to me to be a problem for a rigorous, perfectly probabilistic form of the argument that you're going to write down the probabilities and actually put numbers in. I think you've still got some intuitive plausibility for the argument. Now, the deeper issue here is, of course, you, you start thinking about does God need to be fine-tuned? Mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins, in his... Book. I, haven't, I haven't read the whole thing, but I read the, the central point. I think the strongest way to state his argument is that in God, you need more explanation than he provides. Mm -hmm. You know, this universe might, as complex as it is, God's got to be more complex, and so you've, you've, you've only made the problem worse. These are tough questions, especially when you're a lowly astronomer like myself. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I mean, that, they're, they're tough questions. In the end, Dawkins keeps arguing that if, if there is an ultimate cause of things, you know, if, if the first cause argument works, you know, the cosmological argument, whatever, that entity must be simple, otherwise we only make things worse. Well, all things being equal, it must be simple. But before then, it's got to be sufficient. It's got to be able to cause the effect that we're after. Occam's razor isn't that the simplest hype, you know, the simplest idea is true. It's that the simplest explanation is true. You know, think of gravity. Newton had his ideas of gravity, and they're very simple ideas. And then Einstein came along with his ideas of gravity. Uh, if you've ever tried to learn general relativity, are just incredibly more complex. I mean, they're just ridiculously complex. Why then do we believe Einstein's ideas if they're more complex? Well, because 
Newton's don't explain certain phenomena that we see in the world. You've got to be an explanation before you can before we can pick the simplest one. And I think if you start thinking along those lines, what what would it take to explain the fine tuning of the universe? Just just like you know, you've got to ask if if there's a beginning to the universe, what sort of entity could explain that? And I think you if you start pursuing down those lines, you might convince yourself that it's got to be an intentional agent. It's got to be powerful enough to create universes. It's got to be some sort of mind so that, you know, it, well, if it's going to be intentional, it's got to have some sort of mind. It's kind of like what William Lane Craig does at the end of the Kalam argument. You, I'm sure you're familiar with that. He says, you know, there must be a cause of the universe. Let's deduce its, its, its qualities. It's, you know... Uh, the universe is all of space, time, matter, and energy, so the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and outside the universe, and immensely powerful, and he then has an argument that it's personal. If that argument works, I think we're on much safer ground, because that's just straight-up deduction. If, if that argument works, then the simplest hypothesis must be the simplest hypothesis which agrees with all of those properties. And... You know, Craig would then argue, well, any entity which has those properties deserves the name God, and then we can argue about which the simplest is. Well, very interesting. You've obviously done a lot of reading and research on these issues. Are there particular books or articles that you most recommend to people who want to learn more? Okay, uh, a good place to start is Paul Davies's book, uh, The Goldilocks Principle. That's a very good book. Anything by Paul Davies is good. Also, Martin Rees, who is the Astronomer Royal, he's written a book called Just Six Numbers, which is an excellent book, a nice nice introduction. Also, anything by John Barrow. Anything John Barrow read, writes, go read it. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but in, in particular, I think his book, The Laws of Nature, or something like that, those three authors are quite good. In terms of philosophical issues here, I've mentioned John Leslie a few times, his, his book, uh, universes is just so clear and excellent. In the end, he, he defends a hypothesis which I, I can't make heads or tails of. He thinks that the moral obligation for God to exist is sufficient to make God exist. I don't even know what that means. But the rest of the book is outstanding. The classic in the field is Barrow and Tipler, as I mentioned before, the anthropic cosmological principle. It's got a lot of equations in it, but yeah, I think you can just skip the equations and, and still understand it. It's also got a lot of background on the subject. Anything by George Ellis is worth a read. I don't think he's written any books on this, but there are certainly articles around. If you go to my blog, there's a whole list of resources that I wouldn't recommend, which I critique there. Finally, I mentioned the best defences of the idea that this could prove God. I think anything by Robin Collins is good, and I think... William Lane Craig, in that particular article uh, that I mentioned, is, was also quite good. Excellent. And just one last question. You mentioned that there is a lot of bad writing on the subject. What do you wish the debate over how to interpret fine-tuning would, would be more like? What, what would you like to see and where this goes in physics and philosophy and everywhere else in the popular debate? In terms of physics, there's more work to be done. You know, there's an article by Fred Adams on the, the constraints on, on the stability of stars, and it, you know, it's, it's a nice bit of work, and it looks in more detail into these things. I think we need more, more like that. I think there's room for definitely more scientific work. At the same time, Adams 
makes just a, a howler of a probabilistic misrepresentation in his article. He makes a plot and you've got the strength of gravity on one side and the strength of electromagnetism on one on, on the other axis and sort of outlines where the life-permitting universes are and then says, all right, that range takes up about a quarter of the plot and so the, the probability of life of a life permitting star is about one, you know, is about about a quarter. And uh, he, there's two problems here. The first is he doesn't, that approach could work, but you've got to say, what are the scales on the axes and what are the limits of the axes? For the axes, he just, he just considers 10 orders of magnitude either size. And for the scale, he uses what's called a logarithmic scale, which distorts, anyway. The point is, if you change those assumptions, I did, I did this on my blog. Hey, let's not use a logarithmic scale. Let's just use a normal scale, just your average scale. Uh, and instead of just 10 orders of magnitude in gravity, let's suppose that gravity could be as strong as the strong force, you know, that that is the natural range. If you do that, the probability of a life permitting star drops from 25% to one part in 10 to the 42. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd like physicists to do more things. I'd like physicists to be a bit more philosophically wary. Uh, I think that's starting to happen, though. There was another paper about the constraints on the quark masses, and I thought, oh, you know, geez, I hope they do, don't do anything as dumb as that. Uh, and they didn't. They just said, look, here's the constraints on parameter space. If you want to go apply probabilities, then eat your heart out. We're just going to tell you where life needs to be. That, I think, is exactly what a physicist should do in a physics uh -huh. paper. Just say, here's where life can be. If you want to make that a probability statement, go justify your assumptions. I think the philosophers are generally doing good work. There's a few mischaracterizations of the argument somewhere. There's a few sort of amateurs trying to you know, muscle in from the sidelines who are producing some pretty dumb stuff. I nearly said I don't want to name names, but I do want to name names. That's completely fine. I definitely want to name names. <laughs> uh, Hector Avalos did an article in which he confused the anthropic principle for the, for the fine-tuning. He confused the fine-tuning with the teleological argument, and he presented a version of the teleological argument, which I've never seen in the literature, and is just it's child's play to, for a theist to sidestep it, to sidestep his criticism. Vic Stenger had this, wrote this program called Monkey God, which was about the lifetime of stars. And he, on the basis of this, he claimed, you know, that fine-tuning isn't as much as everyone's claiming to be. Look at all these universes where you can create stars. He got the formula wrong. He, he left out a factor of epsilon, which is, if you read Martin Rees's Just Six Numbers, it's one of his six numbers. So he got that wrong. He didn't alter the strength of gravity. He fine-tuned his assumptions. Again, he used a logarithmic scale and says, oh, everyone, you're only varying one constant at a time. We need to vary more constants at the same time. Yeah, that's true, but you should also consider more than one life-permitting criterion. He only considers one. So that was, just, and that was just awful. Hugh Ross seems to be just finding any fine-tuning claim, however uh, unlikely, and just putting that up as if, as if they were all in the same category. He needs to present the subtleties. You know, there, there are some things we don't know, we're not sure about, and some of them we're quite certain about. William Lane Craig makes a few points that I'm not entirely happy with. 
Uh, he's got a critique of the multiverse that I don't think works, but he's got other critiques of the multiverse that I think are pretty, pretty good. So that's just a minor clarification. Well, Luke, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for clarifying some of these issues for us. Thanks very much.